This program is sponsored by Wicked, Chronic, and Natick, Massachusetts. Located on 185 Worcester Street, right on Route 9, they can be reached at 508-545-8105 or at wickedchronicvendorcommerce.com. Wicked Chronic is a boutique-style retail shop that focuses on selling counterculture products such as Wiccan cannabis cultures coming together in a unique setting. You need something for that special spell? Go on down to Wicked Chronic in Natick, Massachusetts and speak to Beverly. Tell them Dr. Chris sent you. Check them out today. Podcast, a podcast dedicated to all the canceled television shows in the science fiction, fantasy, and horror genre. And I am your host, Dr. Chris. And I'm Mr. Seneca. And tonight on the show, we have two more episodes of the. At- Ooh. Lost my. There we go. And we have two more episodes of The Adams Family from the season two as we wind down our coverage of the show. Mr. Seneca has some interesting information about. Charles Adams and other Adams family goodness. Today's focus area is on Creature Comforts, published in 1981 by Simon and Schulster. It's Charles Adams's tenth collection of cartoons, and it's also the last book before his death. The cover features a cartoon that was previously published as a New Yorker cover. It's an image of an elderly man behind a super deadbolted door, but a Valentine's Day card is slipped under the door. It's a bittersweet Valentine sentiment about love getting in no matter how hard you try to keep people out. All the drawings in the book were previously published in The New Yorker from 1976 to 1981. Now, there are a lot of cartoons in this volume that are either obscure pop culture references at the time or just aren't all that funny. See, here's the thing, though. Charles Adams found getting ideas extremely hard. He would not have been able to produce as much or as variety as he did without other people helping him. Allow me to explain a little bit about his creative process. Charles Adams began his career as a cartoonist in a basically freelancer role. The second cartoon that Charles Adams sold to The New Yorker, he was paid $40 for, and then he was paid another $10 the next month for the same cartoon. So that extra money may have been for a redraw of it, or they ran the cartoon at a larger size than previously planned or and paid for. Cartoonists only got paid for their work, no benefits. They had to create and submit fast and to potentially earn a living. An artist would submit a cartoon, and if it was accepted, they would buy it from the artist. But not all cartoons they buy were used right away or used as is. The way it worked was, as set down by Harold Ross of the New Yorker magazine, they paid $10 for spots and paid by the square inch for full-size cartoons. They also paid for redraws. It's a fast-paced, hustling life, because Charlie never knew what the editors would accept. In 1934, the New Yorker staff and artists would submit 2,000 ideas a week. 
So the editors picked the best ones, then chose the best artist for that idea. Also, a cartoon submitted by one artist may be redrawn by another. The New Yorker bought more art than they could use, which could be 5,000 or more, banked up for future use. This was called the, quote, slush pile, unquote. Luckily, Charles Adams developed a style that stood out. He could take advantage of the collaborative environment that Harold Ross instilled, and the editors were able to tap Charles whenever they wanted to and give him an idea to draw. This ended up working out for Charles Adams since he had difficulty coming up with the ideas anyway, so he may get something from the slush pile on his own, or he could get an idea from his friend Richard McAllister. Richard McAllister was a longtime collaborative partner for Charles Adams. He was a gag man of sorts. He came up with an idea, and Charles drew it and Charles paid him for each idea that was published. Basically, 50% of all Charles Adams' cartoons are founded on something he got from someone else. The rest were the result of his doodles. He would doodle for hours until an idea came to him. For every idea that he worked and ended up as a finished piece, scores of them didn't or were rejected. Now, Charles Adams wasn't a fast artist, but he was diligent. He did roughs at the office, and then the finals were always completed at home. Over the 1970s, the New Yorker changed from being a collaborative process into a solo process. In my opinion, his quality went down after that, which is why Creature Comforts, published with content from 1976 to 1981, is not his best collection of works. That's it for today. And now we have the episode in question of the Adams Family, which is episode 16. All right, episode 16 of season two, Uncle Fester Tycoon, originally aired December 31st, 1965. Fester is smitten with a bearded carnival lady and borrows stamp money to mail her a proposal for marriage. Morticia applies a beard and poses as the bearded lady's mother to convince Fester he will have to work to support a wife. This, now, this episode is all kinds of crazy. <laughs> this episode is all kinds of stupid. I did not like this episode. <clears throat> Yeah, it is definitely not one of my favorites. I do, however, like the immediate opening of this episode. You know, it is the Adams family are conducting an experiment to prove that the human mind can triumph over the law of gravity. So it's all using hypnotic suggestion and the whole, like, you know, stiff as a board, light as a feather type of thing, kind of magic trick, sideshow act, and it fails. But just the idea that they are doing this just, you know, on a lark, you know, just going to see if, if the human mind can, you know, float. <laughs> I, I like that bit of it. The rest of the episode, mm, not so much. It's kind of hit or miss. Yeah, yeah. So, by the way, the episode aired on uh, New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve, yes. We had a Christmas episode, a New Year's Eve episode. Good time in 1965. In 1965, taking over to 1966, and... This was not the best episode to do so on. Fester is overwhelmingly uh, infatuated with the bearded lady at the local carnival. And he says that he's been writing letters for months and finally got a, a signed picture back from her. I don't know in this episode whether Morticia and Gomez want Fester to actually get a job or if they don't want Fester to get a job. There's kind of mixed signals in this episode. Fester can't even afford a five-cent stamp to mail his proposal to the bearded lady, Diana. So Morticia, dressed up as Diana's mother, you know, she does a pretty good job of being this, you know, spry, tough-as-nails type of woman. And she calls Fester a stage door Johnny. 
And I actually had to look that up because it's, it's a term of phrase that is no longer in use. But a uh, stage door Johnny is someone who is infatuated with theatrical actresses and routinely lingers around in theaters uh, to get them, get their attention, to meet them, to, you know, try to court them, etc. Morticia, as the mother, is, is accusing him of just like lingering about and, and wanting him to, you know, prove that he can actually support his her daughter. And I'm proud of Fester. He actually rose to the occasion. Like he he really stepped up and he said that he'll he would lay golden rubies down at her feet if that's what it took. And uh, he goes out and gets a job. Well, first he, he goes through this correspondence course, you know, then he gets a job. This correspondence course is like uh, records. <laughs> so it's kind of like a book on tape, you know, it's just records. Uh, he is very into it and uh, yeah, he's got a cap and gown and the whole bit when he graduates, but it's not really a college degree. No, uh, I, I just think it's funny. He basically, he's doing um, internet college before there was a thing, which was basically a mail, mail order degree. Yes, yes. But it seems as if he's actually doing it as if this is a, a sham university where he's not really turning in enemies, he's just listening to assignments. Oh, excuse me. Morticia looks up in the phone book, cybernetics, cyclops, psychiatrists. <laughs> Only the Adams family would have a phone book with cybernetics in it in 1965. Yeah, but isn't cybernetics spelt with a C? Isn't psychology spelt with a P? Yeah, it's spelt with a P. So why would they be put next to one another in the phone book. Because whoever was writing the script didn't know how to spell, obviously. Yeah, ah, there you go. Psychiatrist, so we thought, oh, see, Cyclops, Psychiatrist, Cybernetics. Yeah, yeah. It's like, no, that's the wrong spelling there, yeah. Again, you could only find um, Cyclopses in a phone book that were owned by the Adams family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the doctor that they end up getting, because, of course, since... Gomez and Morticia pushed him into getting a job. Now they don't really like him having a job. I don't know why. So they think he's going crazy. So they end up getting Doc Brown. And the first thing I thought about was Back to the Future, Doc Brown. And, and this actor has a very radio voice, radio drama voice. Yeah, I thought of Doc Brown as well. Doc Brown, yeah. Cool. So there's a, there's a big case of mistaken identity in this episode. And uh, so Fester's client, Thaddeus Logan, actually does come to the house to to actually close a deal. The Morticia and Gomez think that that's Doc Brown working under a different name. So they think that the doctor is there looking at Fester. The client is getting all this bad information about Fester. And then when he actually sees Fester, cancels the deal and kind of runs out. And uh, the doc comes the next day. And, you know, everything is fine. You know, Fester is back to being a layabout, and so that's kind of what they wanted. You know, they say that uh, only goes to show how dangerous working can be. The guy so. who plays the doc, Harold Peerer, um, long life, 1908 to 1985 he lived. A lot of stuff I never saw, except I think I did see Gildersleeve's Ghost. Um, there was a fake trailer for Ghostbusters that came out. Uh, with a bunch of like older films um, using ghost footage from those movies, like Ghost and Mr. Chicken and uh, Hold That Ghost, um, Bob Hope movie. And this was one of the movies I used a clip from as well, Gildersleeve's Ghost. Yeah, he definitely has a radio drama voice. If, if he didn't do radio dramas, that would have been a, a missed opportunity for him. He's got a very smooth-sounding voice. Yeah, he was also 
in Yogi's space race? I think I remember this. Yogi Bear went to outer space. And he played the voice of Fenwick Fuddy. Yeah. Very weird. Well, we're going to take a quick break and come back with the next episode on the Dead TV Podcast for the Adams Family. And we're back. Next episode, Morticia and Gomez versus Fester and Grandmama. Originally aired January 7th, 1966. Morticia decides to hire a governess to watch the children because she thinks Fester and Grandmama are spoiling them. Insulted, Fester divides the house in half. <clears throat> this reminds me of, like, the Brady Bunch. I think there was an episode where they were dividing up the room between the two Brady brothers or something. It, it This is a long-standing trope, the dividing the house into two. Oh, my God. But, of course, back when this was done, this was kind of a new thing for television right. sitcoms to do. Yeah, kind of interesting to see them all, like, go against each other. But we've seen this plot line before where, like, they spoil the kids. Yeah, I mean, it, it's come up a couple of times, you know, it, the the spoiling of the children, they're like, I guess the concern is that a whole bunch of explosions or grandmama wrestling the alligators or something will just uh, spoil them for life and, and they will never be able to tolerate life outside the Adams Mansion or something like that. I don't know. Morticia wants to hire a governess when they go out to see the Hurricane Zsa And they hire Mary Poppins from fucking hell yeah they do <laughs> now okay we're in hurricane season right now in fact hurricanes have been touching down in the carolinas georgia the bahamas florida so uh, our condolences to anybody out there who has lost uh anything due to these hurricanes that have touched down yeah. uh there's a movie that came out over the summer uh which i'm just posting review about right now called Crawl, which is about a hurricane that touches down in Florida and leashes like a bunch of uh, giant uh, alligators. Giant alligators, yeah. <laughs> now, do you think it's called Hurricane Jaja because Jaja Gabor was doing Green Acres at this time and she was notor- She was like the... Uh, what, what's a, she uh, was a hurricane. She, she was a hurricane. She was yeah. the Kim Kardashian of her time. Oh my god, I definitely think that the Zsa in this episode is entirely based upon Zsa Gabor. Right. Uh, best use of Zsa Gabor was when she got killed by Freddy Krueger in Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, The Dream Warriors. Oh, yes. Yes. Although I did like when her real-life uh, attempt at slapping a cop, and she got away with it, too. Because she's rich and white. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And she's got such the accent, darling. Gomez and Morticia go on vacation, which we actually get to see them go on the vacation. This is kind of unusual. Most of the time that they've left the house, it's to go into town. It's not to go somewhere that we follow them. And this is, I think, the first episode we've ever seen out of the two seasons. We follow them on the vacation. That's true. Uh, Most of the other vacation-ish type of uh, backgrounds that we get are pretty much localized around the house. You know, it's the outside, it's the rooftop, it's, you know, on the properties, the swamp. Not really anything kind of outside the realm of the town. But this, they go to this really dingy motel in order to ride out the hurricane in their sort of style. And in so doing, they have to hire the governess. And it's Miss Thud. Uh, they say that... She speaks Choctaw like a native and holds a white hunter's license. Now, this episode does have Native Americans, uh, uh, racism, Yeah, I guess you could call that, 
there, there's a lot in this episode that doesn't really hold true to this day and age. Like, it would not be considered funny. Probably not. When Gomez is talking about Ebenezer Adams and you know, selling guns to the Indians, like, yeah, it doesn't really hold up in today's age. No. Um, so the actress we mentioned is Irene Ted Rowe. Ted Rowe? Ted Rowe. Ted Rowe. Yes, Irene Ted Rowe. Um, looks familiar. Uh, oh, gee, I complete. no wonder I recognized her. She was Aunt May in Spider-Man. <laughs> she is the first actress to play May Parker in uh, the Amazing Spider-Man uh, series. She played... Okay. Um... Oh, wait, hold on. Maybe I have my information wrong. Okay, so I guess she is the second actress to play May Parker. Okay, so, oh my god. So not only has she played May Parker, she's also played Ma Kent, Superman's mother. Ma Kent? Yeah, Martha Kent. Why did you say that name? <laughs> but seriously, she's been Martha Kent and Aunt May. <clears throat> well, she was in a whole bunch of shows. Like Dennis the Menace? She was in Aunt May. But, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, Trump, sure. Um, what's What's funny is um, coming up in November uh, at Super Mega Fest, the convention that happens like right like behind me, where I live, uh, we're gonna have the Peter Parker Spider Man from that TV series here. Oh, really? Yeah. Nice. Is that some big to do? Yeah, I've always wanted to meet this guy. I mean, this is the first actor to play Spider Man. This awesome. is the first live action actor to play Spider Man. Unless you count the guy who was in the electric company. But I don't know what came first, the nineteen seventy seven CBS series or the or the guy who played Spider Man in the Electric Company. Because the guy in the Electric Company didn't have any dialogue. He used it was like thought balloons. But this actor, Nicholas Hammond, who was one of the Von Trapp children from um uh Sound of Music, has mm-hmm. uh lived in Australia most of his life. And he um, is making a very rare United States appearance here in Framingham to meet fans who know him from the 1970s Spider-Man TV series that lasted only two seasons. That's awesome. You definitely need to get his autograph. Yeah, definitely. I, I have uh, the VHS tapes of that show because I've never released it on DVD. So, But this actress who played um, Aunt May uh, died in 1995. But that would be interesting to uh, bring up to him. Hey, you know Irene Tedlerow? We talked about a movie, a TV series that she guest starred on. See if he remembers, you know, his Aunt May from that show. She, Aunt May only <laughs> appeared in like a couple episodes of the Spider-Man TV series, and there was never any Uncle Ben. No Uncle Ben. No Uncle Ben. They they do the origin story like he gets bitten by a radioactive spider, and that is it. Well, you know, yeah, Spider-Man's been told so many times. Yeah, I am not really sure what the property is going into the future since now that uh, Sony took back Spider-Man from Disney. So you don't remind me about that. I'm not, we might not get any more Spider-Man. Who knows? Are you kidding me? Sony will make more Spider-Man movies without Disney. They will make it with Tom Holland in the Venom verse that they've created. And then who's the guy that owns the, uh, the hotel that uh, the Adams stay at? Uh, The actor's name is Loyal T. Lucas. What a name. Uh, you know, he passed on in 2001, uh, but the Adams family here 
He's actually played several different characters on the show. Uh, he was a jungle doctor. Uh, he was a motel prospector in this episode. And then he was also a hunter in another episode. So he just plays kind of bit parts. He was also in uh, Maverick, Tales of Wells Fargo, Wagon Train, Gunsmoke. And his last credit was Quincy M.E. So kind of a bit actor, didn't really have a very long IMDb. Still a good character. That prospector, the motel that Morticia and Gomez go to, they say that no one has rented out that motel in a year. She finds her old comb there. And uh, to my knowledge, we've never seen uh, Morticia with a comb in her hair, but she left one there. And uh, the entire place has a hole in the roof because we know that because Gomez makes a hole in their roof in order to bring a bit of the motel home to them. <laughs> it's cute in its own way, but uh, yeah, they wanted to ride out the hurricane at this, you know, dingy ramshackle hotel. One of the moments that I really loved in this episode was when uh, Grandma is cooking something. You know, she's cooking. Fester smells it, and he says, that's beautiful. Now, him saying that's beautiful, it is the highest compliment that someone can actually give to someone else mentioning their cooking because he's not going to eat it. She says the food is for Gomez and Morticia for their drive up. Um, but he smells it and he says, oh, that's beautiful. Love that. One little moment. The, the, the disagreement that they have kind of transmutes as the episode continues. So it goes from being chopping the room in half, you know, with Lurch kind of being on both sides and a few gags about, you know, the, the whole, you know, tell him that I want this piece of paper and tell her that I want this, you know, that type of thing. Very trope, you know, trope, trope, trope. The, the episode transitions from dividing the house in half to being that Morticia had accidentally taken Miss Thud's bag with her to the motel. And once she sees the contents, they immediately want to go back to the house because it's filled with vitamins and Mother Goose and just like, you know, a whole bunch of, um, you know, appropriate things for children, lollipops and such, uh, an apple. But they rush home, and in so doing, they find out that Goma, that uh, Fester and Mama had actually fired the governess, and they've been taking care of the children. And Gomez and Morticia are just so happy about that that uh, they just are grateful. And just like with our last episode, there's a lot going on that doesn't entirely make a lot of logical sense. The purpose for how the plot is going, it, it's... It's weird. I don't really like these two episodes. They have some good moments, but as an overall, just as the plot flows, it's not really cohesive to me. No, and when I was thinking of them versing each other, I thought there was going to be like elaborate, elaborate traps to try and kill each other. That would have been very entertaining to watch, but uh, yeah, no, they don't really do the non-supportive bit. They just kind of avoid the topic. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. They yeah. just kind of avoid the topic, and so that's why they hired the governess. Mm. Did you see that Mary Poppins Returns movie? I didn't actually see the movie, 
I wanted to, but um, I didn't really get a lot of good reviews from my friends, so I didn't actually watch it. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So at the very end of the episode, all turns out well. The kids are being taken care of, and the whole idea that they were being spoiled is just kind of ignored, put to the side. You know, it's like Fester in the last episode, he didn't care about the girl anymore, and in this episode, they don't care that the kids are being spoiled. Because they're playing volleyball in the house. Gotcha. Well, that's pretty much all the notes I have for this episode. Yeah, that's uh, what I got. Thanks, Mr. Zeneca, for insightful information earlier in the episode. And don't forget, you can check us out uh, on the Dead TV Podcast on Facebook. And you can check us out on Twitter at, at Elegantly Kinky and at Chris D. SAV. And we'll be back next week with another episode of the Dead TV Podcast and the Adams Family. And don't forget... Oh, Oh, and one last thing, of course. Don't forget, you can also send us an email if you wish at thatradiohorror at gmail.com. And on, uh, leave us a review on iTunes. Always forget that. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.